and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to an SLS cast presentation. This is the Hollywood Horror Cast, and sitting right across from me, Tim, is Matt. Yes, unless you did not hear our previous minisode, Tim is back in Texas. He flew the coop and is joined here with Matt at Castle Day Matt in the courtyard once again to talk about some classic horror movies. And Matt, what are we talking about this go around? Well, I know for sure we are going to be covering 1932's The Mummy as well as 1940's The Mummy's Hand. If we're feeling extra crispy, we might even go so far as to talk about 1959's The Mummy, brought to us by Hammer Films. Yes. I have a feeling we will go full crisp to reach that moment, both physically and within the context of the show, because we might be turning red sitting out here. Well, I just wanted to live up to the hype where we were going to talk about two movies per episode. (laughs) Exactly. So, to start off this series of films, Matt... We have a little bit of a of an age difference, you and I. I am sure. I am I am uh, early thirties. You are early forties. Correct. Um, my first experience with the Mummy franchise was not the Boris Karloff movie or any of the preceding Mummy films, uh, not even the Hammer Mummy movies, but it was the nineteen ninety nine Stephen Summers directed. And Brad Pitt and Rachel Wise starring The Mummy. Ooh, I didn't see that version. I saw the one with Brendan Fraser. How was Brad Pitt? Did I say Brad Pitt? Yes, you did. Well, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a very different movie. Yeah, it, uh, been. <laughs> it might have been more serious than. It, it was good. Uh, <laughs> the one with Brendan Fraser, I I loved it. I went to go see it. I remember seeing it at the movie theater. I saw it a couple times. I was the product of Indiana Jones, Star Wars, adventure movies. I enjoyed The Goonies. I just loved movies that were both steeped in history, yet there was a mystery and a cool uh, adventure aspect to it. And sure, 1999's The Mummy checked off all of those boxes. There's a lot of high-energy... Brendan Fraser is funny. He's charming. Rachel Wise, I remember, I had the hots for her when the movie came out. Uh, that's a totally understandable statement there, sir. Like, as a, I think I was 11 years old, I had dreams about her. Very much like when I saw Titanic, I had dreams that I was Jack Dawson, and I was in love with with Rose, Kate Winslet, uh, in, in Titanic. But I got back onto that door, and I survived. Uh, because of my hots for Kate Winslet. So, 1999's reboot of The Mummy just, again, checked off all these boxes that really made me want to, made me fall in love with the movies. Uh, A lot of people didn't like the 99 Mummy movie, a lot of critics, because it was more of an Indiana Jones adventure, and they were also very much still attached to the Karloff movies. How about you, Matt? Did you start off with the older flicks? Um, so I did, but only the original. I, I when I grew up, um, 
We had this was back when AMC actually did just old movies, just classic cinema from the 30s through like the 60s. Um, and so every once in a while, you know, especially around Halloween, they would start throwing out all the old classic movies and stuff. And so my mom was a big movie buff, um, or I guess still is a big movie buff. And we would sit down and watch the classic stuff because uh, growing up, without trying to get too personal or off track, it was, you know, very uh, religious. And so we couldn't really, we weren't really allowed to watch all of the current horror movies and stuff. That that required sneaking off or uh, going over maybe to dad's house uh, and, and doing it over there, um, you know, as as kids do, right? You go you go where you can get to the content. Which movies would you sneak off to your dad's? Oh, that was, that was definitely when I would go and see like the Halloweens and the Jasons and you know the Nightmare on Elm Streets and all that kind. So of So the stuff. classic uh, slasher, oh yeah, horror body horror movies from exactly. the eighties, exactly. Um, but uh, classic horror from the 30s through mainly the 50s uh, was always allowed right that was the stuff that was allowed so anyways uh, that that's why I got to see like the original mummy and that was really my exposure to it prior to 99 Um, I got more into the Dracula movies and stuff so I saw more of those films I saw a couple of the werewolf uh, movies and stuff growing up and everything but Really, just 1932's The Mummy was the only one I ever saw. Uh, so I, however, like you, was a product of Star Wars, uh, you know, Indiana Jones, all of those kinds of action-adventure movies, Jurassic Park, you know. Um, so when you get to have this combination of archaeology, you get to have this combination of thriller, you get to have action-adventure, and you do get horror elements in it, I'm like, yeah, let's do it. You know that that I, I can see how the old guard um, would have been would have had their sensibilities offended at the time, uh, because as we're about to discuss, 1932's The Mummy and all of those films, even even later on, even as late as 1959 for the Hammer uh, films remake, were not about action they were about suspense it was about slow burn and the action i'm using air quotes uh was really more the attack that would occur from whatever monster or villain is being dealt with in these particular series and of course for our purposes today the mummy um so i can see why they would be like what what is this departure but at the same time it was a natural evolution of movie making what we're going to be talking about in 1932 uh in 1940 and 1959 you know we've moved on from that that's not what's necessarily as scary anymore so sure and it also seems like the reason why we enjoyed the 1999 remake a lot for some of those same reasons we enjoy it uh, enjoyed it that's how the audience enjoyed, or the reasons why the audience enjoyed the original movie so much. Uh, because just 10 years before The Mummy came about, the movie came about, that's when King Tutankhamun's tomb was uncovered, and there was all this media sensationalized story mumbo-jumbo about the curse of the pharaohs, you know. You disturb the resting of somebody's tomb, of 
King Tut's tomb and sarcophagus, you will die. Something horrible will happen to you and your family. And it just so happens that like a number of the crew members from that movie died early on in life. Was it a coincidence? Probably so. But stories and sensational items by the press at that time just really kind of created this curiosity and this foreboding horror that audiences seem to really latch on to. I agree. And I thought, but I also like, and I know we'll get to this a little bit later as well, but I like how they uh, incorporated those kinds of elements, especially uh, like with the mummy's hand, where they make a great deal about finding the tomb and cutting off the uh, cut, cutting off the seal, which was definitely designed to look very similar to uh, Tutankhamun's seal, and uh, you know, again in Fifty Nine's Mummy as well. But uh, yeah, I, I think that it's a really interesting time to have been making these horror movies with the idea and the prevalence of curses being real that people would you know subscribe to um, far more then people would be wanting to subscribe to them today. Totally. And that's what added, all this is what added to the mystique of the movie. At this time, Boris Karloff was already a huge movie star. He found major success after, or with Frankenstein, and then following Frankenstein. He was one of the only handful of actors that was only referenced by his last name. You know, come see, I forgot what his little tagline was on the poster, but Karloff the... Not Karloff the Magnificent or Karloff uh, the like Car- Karloff the Fearforism. Car- Let me see if I can find the. I was gonna say yeah. Let's see if we can pull that up. Well, Matt's looking at that. I mean, there was not nobody. I mean, even Cary Grant was known as Cary Gr- uh, Cary Grant. James Stewart, Jimmy Stewart, was known as Jimmy Stewart, not just Stewart or Grant. Even John Wayne. Nobody ever called John Wayne Wayne. They called him the Duke by a nickname. There are not many performers out there that are just referenced by their last name and that having some kind of presence on an overall project or even an audience. Oh, did you find it, Matt? I did. Karloff the Uncanny. Karloff the Uncanny. He had a very interesting face. He was a tall man. He was this presence. And I guess maybe that is why they called him the Uncanny. Uh, His makeup for the movies that he was featured in, Uncanny, different. Uh, automatically iconic. Uh, before we go into the characters and the plot of the movie, a little bit more background. After the huge success of Dracula and Frankenstein that came out in 1931, Kurt, uh, the producer at Universal, Carl Lemley Jr., was inspired by all these stories of the opening of the Pharaoh Tutankhamun's tomb in the 1920s, 1922 to be exact, as well as the curse of the pharaohs. So he commissioned an Egyptian-themed horror film. And Limley tasked a story editor, John Scheer, I I believe. Let me, I kind of want to double-check to make sure. Uh, Richard Scheer, I apologize, to come up with a a new story by retooling the script called Cagliostro, I think is how you pronounce it. And that one was written by uh, Miss Nina Wilcox Putman. So... Shayer went back and retooled this Cagliostro, and he was unable 
to go back and track down literature or a book to base this film or this retooling off of. Limley looked at Dracula based on a book, Frankenstein based on a book. If this mummy story is based on a piece of literature, it will go far. It will be it will be huge because I guess the thought process for Limley was that people more than likely would read the book and be interested in seeing uh, the movie or have already read the book and would be more interested in seeing the movie. The movie didn't was not based on a book. Nobody was writing uh, great stories of Egyptian cursed Egyptian tombs or pharaohs because all this was still relatively new. Again, just happening less than 10 years before was the uncovering of King Tut's tomb. So he had to create his own story and Shayer went off and did a bunch of research, studied the ancient Egyptian embalming process, the mummification process, uh, what tombs actually look like. Uh, and on top of all of that, Shayer was also a news correspondent during the uncovering of King Tut Uncommon's uh, sarcophagus and tomb and whatnot. So he was there. He saw what the explorers did uh, the, the process and how they kind of handled things and how they spoke. And he was able to add all those interesting and fascinating historical touches to his screenplay, which adds a little bit of authenticity to the, to the overall story. And Matt, I mean, did you feel that this movie was somewhat authentic, whether it be from even Jack Pierce's costuming and makeup effects on Karloff at the beginning to even how they were handling the material of uncovering a mummy and uncovering a tomb and all that. Um, <clears throat> yes and no. I think that uh, part of it is not their fault, though. They, they had not learned enough yet to really know the difference between where embellishments were allowed to take place and they weren't. So some of the process, obviously, they're getting wrong. Uh, but I will say that the makeup, um, I feel, was very very well done uh, I think that the only thing that they could have done better for makeup wise in terms of what the mummy is to actually have a desiccated husk for a face uh, but I think that they did the best they could especially in terms of having a, a living being there you know uh, and in 19 in, in early 1930s with the makeup and stuff they had available to them the effects and stuff so I think also the idea of competing gods and of having servants of different gods who would kind of be doing things differently based on what their god wanted was also pretty much right on point. I mean, that's definitely something that um, people don't realize. Everybody pretty much just thinks, well, of course the Egyptians had gods and, you know, people always know like Osiris and stuff like that. But, um, is it Osiris or Isis? There's Osiris and Isis. Who's the one that he, I guess Osiris is the dog headed one. And then Isis is the, um, it's like, that's the goddess of life or something. And then Osiris is the, or maybe Osiris is the bird one. And Isis is the dog one. I can't remember. So see, there you go. So I mean, there, but <laughs> there were while those were you know all servants of Ra, who were the who, and Ra was of course the great sun god. Um, you know, you have different people serving different kinds of gods and how those different things would have worked out. Uh, I also like that they really did seem to try to take into account the hieroglyphics and 
what that would look like and everything. Um, I like how they also referred to them as ideograms instead of hieroglyphics. So Isis was a major goddess, according to DuckDuckGo here, or I guess Wikipedia. Isis was a major goddess in ancient Egyptian religion whose worship spread throughout the Greco-Roman world. Isis was first mentioned in the Old Kingdom. da 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 Yeah, uh, but was it the dog head one, or is it the bird head one, or... Well, you know, this just looked like a person. Oh, okay. Mm. Um, then Osiris is the god of fertility. Oh, see, there you go. Agriculture, <clears throat> the afterlife, and and the dead. Uh, but I know in the mummy's hand, he, the the one guy who's controlling the mummy. He goes and he prays to one of them, or directly mm-hmm. talks to one, and I guess that's the one I'm trying to figure out if it was Osiris or, or Isis. Um, regardless, at the time, people considered this to be as uh, historically accurate as you can get <laughs> uh, with a film uh, specifically like this, a classic horror uh, movie. But as what Matt was mentioning about the costume effects and the makeup, that was done by the legend Jack Pierce. Jack Pierce, of course, did both Frankenstein and Dracula. He also... Oh, Anubis. Anubis is the dog-headed god. Okay. So there you go, yeah. So Jack uh, Pierce was influenced a lot by Lon Chaney Sr., who, of course, was the um, Phantom of the Opera. And just seeing what all Lon Chaney Sr. would do with his makeup and how he would physically alter and change the look of his face using tape and wires... Uh, it just it was unheard of before so that's what jack pierce wanted to do with these monster flicks create characters iconic images and make them uh look like something that nobody has ever seen uh before of course he did that with dracula uh, even with the laughing man which went on to inspire the look of dc's the joker frankenstein and now uh now the mummy apparently this was karloff's worst experience makeup experience because for the few minutes that he's the mummy in the opening of the movie that was like an eight-hour process it, the bandages even jack pierce had to do so it wasn't just the makeup effects like on the hands and the face jack pierce did everything all the bandages he had to go through and make sure each bandage looked uh aged and lived in he had to add he had to paint on dirt and sand and all that stuff and it was insane uh, on top of it all, luckily for Boris Karloff, that he was only had to wear all this stuff for those opening shots, there was no way for him to go to the bathroom. So he's wrapped up in bandages, like legitimately wrapped up, caked on with bandages and and tape and glues and whatnot, that there was no pee hole flap to, sure. to go. Um, I, I don't know about you. I thought this was my favorite look of the three mummy creatures of the three movies that we're going to talk about today it looks great it looks horrifying uh it looks lived in it looks aged and again it just looks scary and so i appreciate everything that both karloff and pierce were willing to endure to pull that look off um all of these original universal classic monster movies didn't receive large budgets Therefore, the implementation of like inventive camera angles and editing 
uh, lighting effects and even makeup had to be used to elevate the storytelling. And that's when the German cinematographer Karl Freund stepped in. Karl Freund was the cinematographer for Dracula. And he also did a very expressionist film called Murder in the Rue. Uh, and I think Bela Lugosi was in that one as well. But this was his directorial debut, which is why the movie has cool, really good edits, good close-ups, good angles. Um, there were all these stories that uh, it only didn't take like two days to shoot the mummy scenes as Karloff has the mummy in the, the opening scene of the movie. That took a significantly longer of time because there are these stills and shots from the movie where you see more of the full body. Like when he's reaching for the scroll, it, the shot itself you see in the movie is just his hand coming into frame, grabbing the skull and pointing it away. And the camera moves up to the guy and the guy freaks out. Originally you were supposed to see the full mummy and him walking up to the table and grabbing it. But Carl Freund, the expressionist German filmmaker was like, no, it's going to be scarier if we don't see, we limit the view of the mummy in full. It's going to leave the interpretation in the audience's mind if you only see the hand come up, take the scroll, and he leaves. It right, more, everything's more always scary. Yeah, everything, everything's scarier in your imagination. Exactly. Sure. So you have all these great, interesting, fun, and new things kind of clashing with one another, with the makeup, the writing, and the filmmaking techniques. And this is the movie that we got out of it. Um so the characters of the movie, we of course have Boris Karloff playing the mummy, Emotep, but as we'll get into with the story, Emotep, when he escapes, he takes on a human persona, and that human persona is, what did he name, Abe, Abel? Oh, hang on. Um, Let's just look real quick here. Uh, Ardith Bay. Ardith Bay. He takes on the persona of Ardith Bay. Uh, you have Zita Johan, who plays Helen Grossvener, Grossvener, excuse me. And of course, Emotep thinks that she is Anaxuna Moon, uh, the princess Anaxuna Moon that he's wanting to uh, bring back to life in her form. And I guess the whole story is that she is really the princess that has died and been resurrected all throughout history. Mm-hmm. And there's also, I guess, all these deleted scenes that have never seen the light of day where you've seen her being resurrected and then killed off at different points throughout history. So there's like a medieval storyline and then uh, the it, her in Norway with the Vikings coming in and being like killed by the Vikings and then coming back to life at a different point. So uh, it's a story of resurrection in true love on top of the, the gothic horror. So you have the damsel, you have the bad guy, you have David Manners, who plays Frank Wimple, and Bromwell Fletcher playing Ralph Norton, and Sir Joseph Wimple, uh, played by Arthur Byron. So those are the characters, and now the story. Matt, would you like to regale us with the plot of 1932's The Mummy? Uh, sure. Basically, it uh, starts off in 1921, where they are discovering um, the, uh, the the lost, what they hope to uh, discover is the lost temple of, or 
burial chamber tomb. There we go. That's the word I'm looking for. Tomb. There it is. Uh, the lost tomb of Anaxunamon. Um, and they are warned about, you know, potential curses and stuff like that. If you disturb it, then it's going to be, you know, bad for you. All that good stuff. Um, and there, I guess it should be noted that th- this movie does do the preamble of showing you the actual hieroglyphic scroll that brings people back to life and everything like that. Um, so <clears throat> this, so that you are already as an audience member, you are in the viewer, you're already, you know, attuned to what's about to happen anyway. So they go in, everything gets set up. Um, and basically that, um, they come across, uh, a mummy and they're very disappointed because it was just supposed to be this great, awesome, amazing tomb. And instead of finding this great, awesome, amazing tomb, they find this mummy and in a not even, you know, uh, really great thing. So the, the thing that is really interesting though, is that as they go to look at this mummy, they realize that the mummy wasn't actually mummified and that is like really interesting you know like and then they realize oh my gosh this guy was buried alive and so um then of course the mummy comes back to life uh due to the desecration of the, uh, the the tomb and starts basically uh um his uh resuming his quest to come after his love so you don't quite know everything yet because they're going to show that to you later on. But ostensibly, Imhotep loves his loves uh, Anuk Um When she is sick and dying, he is like, "Don't worry, I got you, babe. It's gonna be all right." And then when she goes to pass away, he actually uses the scroll. He gets caught using the scroll, and as punishment for doing all of this uh, sacrilege, they make him the living mummy, right? Um, fast forward again. Now we're about 10 years on and, uh, we've got his son is, is in play. Uh, they are doing all of this, uh, you know, just kind of catching up in terms of getting you through the plot. But now we've got a girl who is being held under a trance. Why? Because Boris Karloff has discovered that she is the lost love and is trying to reunite him. Uh, shenanigans ensue. And it becomes a race to see, can they stop Imhotep before he is able to get her um, uh, and turn her back into Anaxunamun officially, uh, including like resurrecting her soul into uh, fully into, oh, what is her name? Um, into Helen. Helen's body. Yeah. yeah. Um, Zeta Johans, Helen. Exactly. Or Johan. Um, so yeah, they, it ends. You know, which side is going to prevail? The love of now, the the love and the uh, and and uh, rather quick formation of love and companionship that occurs in the present, or the eternal love that Imhotep has for Anaximum. Well, before we go further, uh, I messed up on who wrote what. (laughs) I want to clear this up, and this will actually segue into another question I have for Matt. Um, So Richard Scheer retooled that other script, that other story from Nina Wilcox Putman. But 
John L. Balderston was the one who actually wrote the screenplay, and he was the one that reported on and was there during the uncovering of King Tut's tomb. But Balderston also, I believe he also wrote Dracula, and some of the common criticisms of The Mummy is that it follows a lot of the same... It, it has some of very similar dialogue to Dracula oh, and yeah. some the of the story beats. Thing. Yeah, all the trance story beats and all that kind of stuff. Sure. Right, yeah, and like two of the two of these characters having a hypnotic power over women and everybody else especially, but especially wanting to in some way re- uh, resurrect one true love out, out of the, uh, mm. the the female uh, protagonist, the female uh, the the protagonist's hero's love interest, yeah, I yeah. suppose. Does that bother you at all? I mean, I think I just already kind of assumed that a lot of these were going to be similar. So going into it. Um, no, that didn't bother me. I think that it's kind of like having a movie about uh, about bank robbers, right? I mean, you're, you're going to have a, simil- a similar cast of characters. You're going to have a similar... Um, similar plot elements, but that doesn't mean that the exact same robbery is happening and the exact same way that the robbery would happen in one movie is going to happen in this movie. And so I I think you have to look at it from the themes and the elements, how you're using them. Uh, So I did note it. I mean, and maybe because it was so soon after Dracula, that might have been... um, more of a detriment to the film, but in terms of looking at it today, it was just a similar element uh, that was used. And one thing that I liked that was distinctly different was the dichotomy of the trance state. Like, you could tell when Helen came out of the trance and that she didn't want to be in that trance and she was, like, fighting what the trance was doing to her versus the trance state which was now everything i have to do is the literal opposite of that um the only thing i would say about the trance state that was kind of a negative was sometimes it was and maybe this is down to the editing it was a little too sudden of a switch um i think it would have been better to have it be a little bit more subtle this is also uh during the pre-code era of, of films. They could have done a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> and you definitely see... Don't you see... Is this the one that you see side boob? Yeah, more or less. Like, I mean, you the see dress, quite a bit. The, yeah, the dress comes down a lot, and you can see uh, uh, areas of boobage. But you don't ever really get to see, like, the whole thing. Right. No, exactly. But, he, but it's enough to where... Or maybe it's more see-through things during the flashbacks, but... Well, that too. Right. I mean, there's there's a definite difference in content compared to the follow-up movie, The Mummy's Hand. Right. Uh, so I think that's something else that's worth noting as well. They could get away with a little bit more risque things with this film than they could with other, other movies, but it's not very risque at all. Which is also why, when we get to it, uh, the Hammer mummy movie was not nearly as risque as I thought it was going to be other than some hinted towards graphic nudity when they undress the princess and they start the embalming process but no blood, no guts nothing like that Right. although there is something you do see 
in the movie, whenever they bury the princess, they don't they kill. So there, there were like the six slaves that carried the princess body. They killed the slaves. So in the afterlife, the slaves are there to serve the princess. Right. And then they kill six guards. Wasn't it like the guards who threw the spear to kill the slaves also get killed? Yeah. Also get killed. So but that spear guards. through the gut was good. Exactly, and that's another pre-code thing that you would not be able to see later on. Is you see at least one slave right in center frame, just with this a gory spear protruding from his gut. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, and it really, folks, if you have not ever seen this movie. If you want to see just exactly what the code did to cinema, just watch the the three minutes of that scene where they actually go through and you know graphically show the burial process and stuff. Um, it's it is masterful uh, makeup and special effects, practical effects, really. So, as what we mentioned before in the plot. So when the movie starts going, um, Karloff's The Mummy takes on a human persona as, I want to call him Abel Smith, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's not Abel Smith. Ardeth Bay. Ardeth Bay, not Abel Smith. Yeah. As, as Ardeth Bay, and I forget really what his made-up backstory is, but he's very interested. Oh, he points them into the direction of where... Uh, to uncover the tomb. Unhook Cinnamon's tomb. Yeah, yeah the, exactly. The, the, the real tomb this time. Exactly. Like, yeah. he knows exactly where it is. So he becomes a hero of the father and son exploration team. And if I remember correctly, it's father and son. So they... At they, this point, yes. At the, yeah. yeah. The first time around, it's just it, it's just the dad and the dad's partner, uncle, whatever, are there. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they uncover the tomb. They open up this museum... And Abel Smith, which is not Abel Smith, I already forgot. Artist Art Bay. of Bay shows up and does his and and is is kind of like something is off about him. He doesn't want to participate in any, any of the ceremonious things that are happening. He just wants to hang out in the exhibit where the princess Anaxuna Moon is being kept, and there he starts the process of. Uh, enchanting, luring Helen into his clutches, into a, into the resurrection uh, process. So there's a lot of really cool things happening. When you finally understand the the looking at, you know, uh, understanding the background when you look into the past, he brings Helen over. He's like, look into this dry ice pool. And the camera does this really cool shot where it comes up and goes over the top of their heads and it focuses onto the pool as if you're being brought into the past along with Helen and um, not Abel Smith. Ardeth Bay. Ardeth Bay. And it goes No, it's Emotep now. It's I mean, Emotep. He's, emo, he's Yeah, he's being Emotep. Yeah, now, now, now he is Emotep, yeah. um, which is how they say his name in the Brendan Fraser mummy movie. Emotep. And... It's a really cool effect. It's just a dry ice pool. But I loved how they're trying to bring, again, German expressionism cinema, expressionistic cinema in its in its finest, trying to bring the audience into the story. And one simple camera move and a zoom in to this pool, and all of a sudden you're transported back 3,400 years into the past, or however long it was, to the burial ceremony of Anaxu Namun. Overall, Matt... 
what did you think about this movie? All right. So having not seen it for a very, very long time, uh, it was it was a fresh take on it. Um, I did have the kids join in. Uh, really? Yes. Because okay. even though they don't like horror movies, I explained to them that, you know, 30s horror is not what you think of when you think of a horror movie. So I think you should give it a shot. If you think it's scary, then, you know, check out. If you want to hang, hang. Lay hung. Uh, the only thing that they were creeped out by was when the guy loses his mind from laughter. Oh, at the beginning. Yeah, at the yeah. beginning. Uh, which they were like, okay, that's kind of getting creepy. And thankfully, by that point, they cut out. Um, so, the I for myself, I found it to be too slow. Um, it just... With everything that I have seen since then, I mean, from a kid's from from my recollection of being a kid, I was definitely, you know, really interested in it. Um, I didn't find it scary then. I mean, I was probably twelve when I first saw it, um, and so even my daughters um, were all but were all like, "Oh, wow, this is really interesting." Um, they were never really scared by it. Um, it was not horror in that context for them uh, they were really interested by it myself I just found it even though there are things that are interesting I did just feel like the pacing was very slow um, which is fine it's a slow burn uh, and, and that's and there's nothing wrong with that but I found that especially as you move into a comparison for it by the ironically less well received mummy's hand um it is it's just a very slow paced film um and i get that some of it is suspense to to instill terror but the 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 parts of the movie that do that um are kind of few and far between sure so slow movie would you have liked to see more of the mummy itself i would have liked to have seen either more of the mummy uh proper or more of the gravitas of Emotep when they would do the close-up of his face and they got that light angle. They'd use a bit of a Dutch angle and then come at it with uh, the lighting so that he get that reflective kind of glow off the eyes whenever he was getting into his, uh, you know, trance casting state and everything. Um, I would have liked to have seen more depth from that. I think if they had if they had pushed that more because despite how scary the mummy as the full-bodied mummy was and again great makeup um i think that you've got at you've got in a mummy you've got a mindless monster as we will definitely see in the following movies but as emotep controlling people and doing things that's scary you know it's now you've got a calculating evil sure and that's where um, I would have been just as fine if they had explored that more versus just a whole body mummy going, whoa, right? I mean, so. And for those of you who just missed it, I stuck my arm out at him like I was going to choke him like they do in the mummy movies. It was frightening. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Matt, whenever I look at him, I think of a lumbering mummy as, as he walks about generally. Oh, lumbering, yeah. Lumbering walker. Absolutely. <laughs> I I uh, so one of the reasons why I brought up talking about the mummy 
classic franchise is because as a kid, there was, I can't remember, it's definitely not one of these. I remember watching one where the mummy was lumbering outside of a big home, and I think there was a party, and there was cool fog, and it was very atmospheric and mysterious. And just for some reason, that always stuck in my brain. And I never really went back and rewatched any of them until until now. I've seen the Karloff Mummy movie when I was a kid, and I felt now the same way as I did when I watched it then, which is is that it's technically the execution of the film is is well done. It's well made. It's well crafted. A lot of cool ideas with the angles and the editing and the progression of 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 the suspense. But overall, it is very stuck in its time period. I can I can get behind that. There's I mean. Silent movies were, I mean, talkies only came around a couple years beforehand. I mean, it's talkies were still a new thing. So you see a lot of the stuff uh, that you would see from a lot of the same beats and how they would make a film, how they would do a silent film. You still see them utilizing all those same techniques with these early 30s films. So you don't have like your you're gone with the winds where there's something modern about gone with the wind or even your archers movies where there's something like a modern feel to these films that kind of defy all time. You know, you watch it now and it feels like you're watching people now opposed to this. It feels like you're watching 1920s actors emoting and, you know, trying to, trying to jumpstart a very random love story that neither of us it sounds like really got behind because it just kind of happened right you know and that's that those are 1930s techniques or 1920s silent film techniques of telling a story you know there's nothing really organic about it the most organic is maybe some of the historic accuracies and Karloff playing the mummy you know his presence he oh, I, I agree but I'm, I'm sorry I do think that the one sensibility that lasted because I said I was going to mention this is he does at one point when Anaxi um, is starting to freak out going hang on I, this isn't exactly what I thought I was signing up for and he said he's like I spent 2300 3700 years or whatever it is you know uh, basically, as living dead, can you just shut up and do this one thing for me? You know, it's I mean, that like spoke to me on a visceral level. I was like, how many times have you told your significant other, and I don't care who your significant other is, how many times have you ever told your significant other, I have done X, Y, and Z. I've done this. I've put up with this for so long. Can you just do this one thing for me? And then they won't do it. And it's like, yeah, that's like messed up. And of course, the mummy was a hit. Again, there was like an Egyptian, ancient Egyptian craze, you know, taking the country, maybe even the world by storm. Sure. Uh, movie theaters. You have these beautiful, ornate movie theaters that were Egyptian themed. I mean, look at the Egyptian theater in uh, Los Angeles. I think that was built in 1928, maybe. Um, it, and it, it, it was designed to feel like you were in an ancient Egyptian tomb. I mean, that's what people were into a lot of even like rich folk you know their mansions were designed to look in some way resemble ancient egypt whether it be mantle pieces or uh pottery or light fixtures you know these people were it was a fashion statement it seemed like in the 20s and, and early 30s for a lot of folks right before art deco became a big thing exactly and That's i what... guess that did that inspire art deco um i think 
to a certain extent. Uh, definitely the sharpness of the angles uh, in a lot of the stuff would definitely have been re- uh, like um, referential to the pyramids, stuff like that. I think especially the golds uh, and the blacks, right? All of those stark contrasting of ornate colors and schemes. I could definitely see that as Egyptian influence. Now, I am not an art historian, so this is all inferential on my part, but it does seem to jive. Which it might come to a surprise that it took him so long, about eight years, to make a sequel. And as we know from talking about Dracula and even uh, the Wolfman series a couple years ago, they really didn't make sequels. I mean, this movie had a definite ending, you know, they were not planning on continuing the storyline. Uh, same with Dracula and even same with Frankenstein. Because nobody really, I mean, sequelitis was not a thing. Right. Which is why The Mummy's Hand from 1940, they had to completely rehash the plot of the first mummy. But with new people, and they also gave the mummy a new backstory. Uh, there's no ancient text or even really ancient scrolls, but there are magic leaves. leaves. Yes, Karis leaves, I think. Yeah. So, Matt, would you like to talk to us about the similarities or even differences? Tana leaves. Tana leaves. Of of 1940s The Mummy's Hand. Okay, so what is so interesting about this is that it really and truly tries to be... An Abbott and Costello movie? No, it tries to be a remake. Uh, it, it does not try to be a sequel. And yet, at the same time, it confuses itself by deliberately reusing assets and shots from the first movie. I think it's uh, particularly uh, hilarious how they will use cutaway and side shots of Karloff uh, in the for the flashbacks, yeah, yes. for the flashbacks and stuff, and the setup, and then of course when they need to change the dialogue, especially for like the Tana leaves and stuff, instead of the scroll, um, it is a it is the actor that they used in the movie to you know portray that part. Um, uh, they also reused the uh, pool, uh, the the dry ice I, I, dry pool. ice pool, yeah. Uh, get up and everything so i can see how from a uh from a budget perspective that they really did not want to spend any money on it Uh, but at the same time i liked what they did in terms of giving it a stronger storyline uh and again this is why you know tim mentions uh ideas of things like the the elements of all future mummy movies are pretty much right here. And so instead what we have, though, are a couple of adventurers who are down on their luck. Uh, Steve Banning and Babe Jensen. They have come across... Uh, they've, they've kind of... They're on a bit of a run of bad luck right now. They uh, Steve has done... Uh, Steve Banning is a successful archaeologist of old, but on his current expedition, he's found nothing. So he's trying not to go back empty-handed and ends up finding out how to uh, access an actual tomb uh, to find uh, Anuxinamun and all that good stuff. 
what we and it's not Emotep anymore. Correct. It's not Emotep. It's Karis or Karis. Yeah. Karis. And so what's interesting though is that we, as the audience, have been treated to this um, group of uh, followers of Karis, I suppose, um, who have protected. Anuxinamun's tomb, and that's like their whole goal. Uh, it's kind of like the the dudes with the weird cross symbol cut into their chests from uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Uh, it, their job is to protect uh, the actual location of the Grail, the Knight Templar Knights, or something, something like that. Yeah. But it's the but it was the um, the the Arabic guys, right? You know, the, yeah. So it's kind of like the Egyptian version of this kind of. Um, crusade group or what have you uh there it's their job to make sure nothing happens to anux and uh tomb so anyways uh naturally though our intrepid hero steve is like um yeah i've got this pot and this pot's gonna tell me where i can go so he goes talks to his um archaeologist buddy at the cairo museum also a shot from the previous movie <laughs> and um then they get, of course, uh, turns out that the guy running the entire department is the newest high priest that we just saw earlier. And, of course, he does everything he can with the help of a local street beggar, um, who is actually not really a street beggar, but also someone who just happens to, you know, be a follower of this. Um, so they're doing everything that they can to stop Steve from getting a hold of this. Um, tomb. Uh, thanks to the Tana leaves, they are able to control Karis the mummy, uh, and they use only certain amounts of Tana leaves to keep him in his state of living mummification, uh, and then they can use a few more Tana leaves to actually make him come alive and attack people. But if he gets too many Tana leaves, he'll turn into this unstoppable monster. So, uh, as before, shenanigans ensue. Steve comes across a girl who's the daughter of a guy that's financing this expedition. Uh, and what's going to happen? Will these people, will these temple people uh, be able to control the mummy and stop Steve? Will Steve figure out what happens? You know, watch to find out. Um, one thing that I thought that this movie did well was the face of the mummy. Now, I know that we both can agree that the makeup work done for Karloff in the first movie when they did the close-up and he is totally supposed to be desiccated, top-notch, cannot be overdone uh, or overstated. But when they would take the time to do the shot of Karis in this film and almost like these... I don't even know how to describe it. Um, like like a stuttery shot, uh, almost like a strobe light or whatever, but it's the black in his eyes that would almost like flicker, that would be flickering and everything. Um, that was straight up hella creepy, and I really enjoyed when they did that. Uh, and they only do sure. it like three times in the movie. But it's effective. It, it is. It is very effective. I thought that that was a really good way to do the whole full body mummy thing because that's what they do in this movie. So from here on out, 
you know, you're getting kind of the mummy as a big embodied, you know, just wrap bandage wrapped thing. Um, but they also felt was a really good way to pay homage to Karloff when he was doing his, you know, casting of the spell part and then his creepy face. Um, but I, I thought that one, I, I kind of thought that one was better uh, in, in Mummy's hand. Well, I mean, it's so they went frame by frame to black out the eyes, which is why it has like a strobe light effect. Okay. Because the blacking out probably wasn't even, you know, it wasn't like it was it wasn't the same shape, I guess, per frame. So that's probably why it's strobing kind of on the sides because it's not matching up frame by frame. Well, there you go. See, I didn't know that that's how they achieved that shot. That's Which is really an cool. unintended uh, aesthetic, yeah. I guess. And also, another thing to keep in mind is that more than likely, I don't know if it's true or not, but I guess it is kind of common sense that the mummy is, this is like the, the lumberous mummy that we all have familiarity with. And... I'm pretty sure they're not going to want to do eight hours of applications on the actor right. every single day. So therefore, it doesn't look as aged. It doesn't look as detailed and grainy like the opening of Karloff's The Mummy. But, I mean, you're absolutely right. There's I didn't have any issue with it, though there were certain aspects when... Uh, I mean, more so with the Hammer movie, where uh, it just looks like Chris Lee was wearing a shirt and some slacks with mud all over it, you know? Oh, yeah, that or, like, how his mummy bandage costume was literally a... Um, it's like a t-shirt. It, well, no, it, was like, it wasn't quite a straight jacket. It was a, a fencing outfit. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, you could see, you could literally see the outline, including going down to where the groin, where it pulls under the groin, so, and then they just put, like, bandage stuff over it. Yeah, and so, it's not as bad in The Mummy's Hand, but you can, you can tell they... There, there was were, a decline in quality. It was a decline in quality, but the face makeup and the strobing eyes, you know, the blacked out eyes, and I think the mouth also. Yes. Um, it's really creepy, because the look on his face, it's just... It's it's terrifying, really. Yeah. But sorry, I didn't mean to. Cut oh you no, off. you're fine. I, but I will say that you mentioned you you kind of slid in that comment about uh, Abbott and Costello, and I think that that was um, that was not incidental to the film. And the reason why we mentioned Abbott and Costello is because the two leads, uh, it's kind of the straight man and the goofy New Yorker sidekick guy. Right. Who's always cracking jokes? He has this little uh, Egyptian like a, yeah, doll, doll like yeah, a, it's supposed to be like a hula doll or anything, but it is Egyptian in nature. Right, it it's like his around. good luck charm. But yeah. he's always making like these misogynistic jokes towards it, and it's very, it's very Abbott and Costello like. Yes, you know. Um, but the interesting thing that I thought, so you, I, I felt like I enjoyed. Okay. I enjoyed the pacing of this movie. I think the structure suffers because of how they were trying to reboot it. Like the the whole Tana leaves thing was kind of dumb. Uh, I think they could have. I think they could have used the scroll in a different way to create a potion. Like the because there's so much on that scroll. It's not just that one saying. <laughs> so you could have had the scroll still be the key and the scroll teaches you how or, you know, tells you how to make or imbue a potion to do the exact same job of these 
tana leaves, right, that are extinct at the time by the time the movie comes around. Um, so, I the structure of the movie does have flaws, but the pacing of the movie more than makes up for it. And I like that they have things to break away from the suspense and the terror because it allows for you as an audience member to also lower your guard so that when the stakes get raised again and then you're faced with like that terror that that you know just pure terror face of the mummy you you get sucked back in going oh crap wait a minute you know i'm supposed to be scared now and it does because you've been kind of relaxed going oh these are just regular people and oh look there's some clever hijinks and oh what a funny little mess up on the card trick because you know the magician got you know what have you so i actually thought that the pacing of the movie is much better the character building yeah is definitely stronger and you can and it's also a little bit more believable even by 1940s standards it's also a little bit more believable that the guy and the girl want to get together steve and what's the magician's daughter's name yes i that made more sense it kind of reminded me of a of a of a martin and lewis movie yeah you know where it's it's kitschy, it's fun, it's romantic, you know, lovers see each other from across the room and they just want to be with each other. It I mean, especially in the 40s and 50s, stuff like that plays out more palatably. And um and it helps that Marta doesn't like Steve at the beginning. Sure. Right? They do have to like kind of overcome this obstacle yeah. cleverly put in by the priest guy, right? The priest is constantly trying to stymie Steve. Um, and, and, and through him and the street urchin, you know, who's doing the bidding and stuff. So I like that those, again, uh, I, I like that the pacing really helps, even if the structure is flawed in certain aspects. It's definitely a 1940s movie. Yes. Uh, they're in Egypt and they go into a bar and the bar is run by this very British man. Hello, Governor. Any find any new relics in the tomb as of late? Here, would you like a couple of lagers and a couple of ales too? And I get it. There were a British. Uh, there was still British camps. colonialism, in, right? Yeah, in, yeah, yeah, know, yeah, there yeah. At the time, but but there's just something about the Beauty and the Beast bartender or something. Oh yeah. You know? Well, I also thoroughly loved how it's supposed to be a British establishment so that would excuse your British bartender and the two white guys there but there's literally no one else who's british there so it's a local bar like so they kind of need to pick uh the aesthetic that they're going to go for are we going for a truly local bar that these guys know about and can hang out in are they going for british colonialism i don't know but it does again lead into the idea of the pacing is being is really good because you get that fight and you get kind of some other stuff going on but then again that is also where the structure kind of suffers because now it's like, what are we, what are we trying to be? Um, all in all though, I will say I enjoyed this movie and because the pacing was better overall, I actually kind of enjoyed this one a little bit more than, uh, the mummy from 1932. I did too. Uh, I mean, it was, I mean, again, it's a product of the forties. Uh, wholeheartedly agree. Yes. But you could tell that they're trying to set up, I mean, it dies by fire. I mean, the mummy gets set on fire. Absolutely. So I guess fire doesn't kill the mummy, which is how they're able 
to have the next one. And it follows the same character as the next one, apparently. So I, I guess that's exciting. But um, yeah, I'm just like so worried now. Um, but I think my, my biggest issue with the movie is that there's always easy explanations for things. Uh, for example, they say something about the on the mummy, the uh, the lines on his face. What do the lines mean? Oh, well, the lines mean that's just how much he was in love. It just the love over the. I I think I'm completely wrong with the reasoning. The reasoning they give for the lines oh, on his face. The lines on his face are from the uh, his screaming and struggling against the bandages while he was trapped inside. It like literally carved the bandages and the stuff into. Oh, his that's face. what they say in this one. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, I see. I could have sworn it was something a little bit cheesier the, nope. each line represents the year of love that he has lost while stuck in his tomb okay well then that makes more sense <laughs> <laughs> but i mean you also had the music that becomes a little more iconic it's not uh, like your canned grandiose monster horror movie music sure. the, the music lumbers along with the lumbering mummy there's more of a foggy aesthetic and it's a it, it becomes more of a cre- a creature feature, and a f- maybe more so uh, it goes away from the horror aspect to more of a genre uh, matinee uh, movie that the kids are gonna like. Adults have to worry about there not being side boob or <laughs> any. Even when they show the flashback of the slaves getting speared it's cut out like you don't see it you see like a facial reaction and that's it so right you don't actually get to see because i was really looking forward to that and all you see is the guy slump over and they cut it back so that you don't really see the spear you just kind of see the shadow of the spear through the guy as it cuts away so yeah i mean um definitely more family friendly i mean by our standards today this stuff is like ridiculously tame but you can see what they were, you know, Hayes Code had definitely been in effect for 1940. So things that we liked about this one is what we didn't like or what was missing out of the first one. What we liked about the first one is clearly missing from from this one. Yes. I think if you mash them up, you get a really good movie. 1999 Mummy. I'm what? Sorry. <laughs> but if you mash them up, you even get our last film, 1959's Hammer Ver- hammer hammer horror yeah, hammer version horror, of yeah, the mummy sure where you have uh wonderful performances peter cushing is great he plays the oldest looking young guy uh i think i've ever seen right um, christopher lee is tall foreboding but he does not look scary when you see the mummy and you see the eyes and you see the you see the the tear ducts you see the ducks in the eyes so it's like there's nothing ancient about Christopher Lee's mummy. So before we get into that and conclude this episode, what are some of the key differences between this film compared to the first two mummy movies? All right. Well, you actually, you just, you just kind of put your finger on it there. Uh, So with this version of the mummy, you are supposed to be noting that it is, truly a living being yes it's still supposed to be in a state of decay for you know thousands of years and all that kind of thing but i i truly think that the eyes were 
a focus that, that they were meant to be there so that Christopher Lee could convey the emotions that he that would have been at all possible with the rest of the makeup and the mask and stuff and the costume. That is probably the biggest difference in terms of how um, the mummy is portrayed. Um, I think beyond that, the uh, the only other difference is is where the where the humor had been kind of uh, put in. That's just been entirely removed so that they could have the plot elements that they needed to to borrow to have the movie take place occur. Um, it's definitely going back to that slower, more of a thriller style. Um, they do, however, make sure to put more scenes of explosive action in it. Uh, Christopher Lee doesn't just, you know, enter the room. Uh, through the back of a tent, let's say. Uh, no, he explodes the window in a padded cell <laughs> or, you know, kicks an entire door in or something like that. Yeah. Um, so those are really, you know, the differences that I, that I saw. The, 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 um, just the fact that it really was meant to be a living tomb. You know, the, the, the body, the mummy itself is the living, the, the living aspect of it was really drawn in this time and you and care a little bit more between him and an oxuna moon right uh especially with the flashbacks so of course there's more flashbacks uh but you see the full ceremony exactly and you see the process the mourning process you the embalming and all that stuff i mean again this is a very tame hammer movie there's no blood suggested graphic suggested graphic nudity when they uh undress her and they lay her on the table everything's right. blocked and covered um, but you actually see him as the high priest, and then when everybody leaves, he sneaks back in to try to bring her back to life. Right. But I guess my question is, why did he wait to bring her back to the, to life after the embalming period? Why did why didn't he do it before the embalming when she was in the morning? stage where people were mourning for like a week or my guess is is that that's the point in the process when she was alone i mean you've got all those people around all that stuff's happening all the ceremonial stuff there's no way for him as a priest to get away this was the first this was so that's my that's my thinking also i would think that it was even ritualistically like he knew what he was doing was wrong but he also wanted to at least try and keep a modicum of his devotion to the god so by this point her earthly work is not only done but there's no vestige of her to sully or to defile in terms of his love and hopefully them being together physically because that was kind of the thing sure yeah they couldn't be together because she had to reserve her body for the god when she died so so there's more of character work but i think what really brings this movie down is the the look of the mummy um again you see his eyes you see the ducks you see part of a little bit of skin flesh so it, there's nothing horrifying uh, you know about it uh and it's a shame because there's so much there's so much that i like about the movie i like the color grading i like the look i like the sets I like the minimalistic story approach. And again, I like Peter Cushing. Uh, 
And I like how, you know, one person dies, who's going to be the next one that dies. And then slowly it builds up to him. And then the, there's the reveal of his, uh, of his significant other, how she holds the key to overpowering uh, the mummy. I like the whole aspect of uh, the bog. Right. You know, and eventually Creature from the Black Lagoon kind of a thing. Right, exactly. Yeah. And 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 the bog comes back again at the end of the movie for when the the, the climax. Mummy, or the climax. Yeah, yeah. for how and they get rid of him. It is interesting. Um I'm reading from uh Wikipedia, but this is kind of interesting. This is something that I had uh noted previously, but um so the Quote, though the title suggests Universal Pictures' 1932 film of the same name, the film actually derives its plot and characters entirely from two 1940s Universal films, The Mummy's Hand and The Mummy's Tomb, with the climax borrowed directly from The Mummy's Ghost. End quote there. So, and it is interesting because you are seeing purely those elements, those story elements, like like the flashbacks and all that stuff coming directly out of The Mummy's Hand. But... And that may be also true about The Mummy's Ghost for the climax. But I do think that it is fair to say the love that uh, Karis has, that is 100% lifted from The Mummy. Sure. And I think, yeah. and I think, and I think that's a pretty important notation um, that, I, that this movie is not getting enough credit for. Uh, because, yes, you can clearly see where the mummy's hand is coming in on that. Uh, I am sure that, you know, the climax is the same from the mummy's ghost, etc. But I think that what carries that plot line is the fact that they pulled that love story from the mummy. Uh, I also like that in this one, they let um, Peter Cushing's character be married, right? I mean, yeah, she's a fiance for a minute, but by the end of the movie, they're married now. This is like an established relationship. It's no longer, oh, look, let's meet and fall in love and da-da-da-da, which I think is something that is uh, a good story element to include, especially for a Hammer film. Uh, I think it was a very British way to put that in there, too. I also liked how they kept Peter Cushing from being a part of the team that defiled the tomb by giving him like a, a leg, like he twisted his ankle or twisted his knee, did something. Right. Which keeps him out of the running of being murdered by the mummy. At least he, at he, first. At, at, well, at first, but then I think, but then he becomes, he's, he gets in the way of the mummy and, and, uh, and Anok, the moon. Right. The, the guy, yeah, basically the Egyptian guy, um, and I re- let me pull that up because I would very much uh, like. Let's see here. Hang on. Um, let's see. George George Pastel as Mehmet Bey. Um, he uh, he's the Egyptian guy who's like, don't go in the tomb if you go in the, the tomb. Beginning. But yeah, right. Um, and I really loved this guy's character. Um, you can see his devotion uh, to the process and to his God and everything like that. You can see, but you, I love how the, the 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 chess game that he and Peter Cushing play towards the end of the movie, um, where it's clear that Cushing is deliberately pushing him and trying to get a rise out of him. But while he takes the bait a little bit, 
he understands that Cushing is trying to get a rise out of him and shows Cushing's character just exactly where he's aired and why this is happening to sure. him. Sure. Yeah. You know, I I just I thought that was that's probably my favorite scene in the whole movie. Yeah. I I really did like it. Yeah, so it's neat. I I mean it makes a little more sense that the mummy would have somebody with wrong intentions controlling it. Right. Whereas maybe the mummy wouldn't actually come back to life and automatically start killing people. Right. Whereas Karloff didn't really do that. You know, there's a little bit more gravitas to Karloff's interpretation. But, you know, the mummy's hand, you know, it's more of a lumbering killer. Yeah. Whereas this one, there's somebody directly controlling the mummy. Um, but, but, but the mummy really... still has his own agency to a certain degree. Right, exactly. Which also is a little bit, you know, in some way, the mummy's mind control didn't really quite understand it. Partially because he's able to be controlled, but then again, it's the whole, my one true love, you know, and that kind of keeps him from being fully mind controlled. Um, a little bit of a cop out. But well, kind of, but again, I think it also goes back to the idea of him um I mean, it's a whole classic storytelling right, he, he, Yeah, he's he knows that the only thing that he's good for anymore is to protect the grave. Right. right, and so he's got to protect the tomb and uh, and make sure that people will never go back and defile it again. Hence, his being a willing participant to be controlled and to stay in the tomb and stuff. Where he starts to have a problem is when he sees his love, and he's like, "Well, wait, that's the person I need to protect. That's the person I'm supposed to." You know. Sure. Yeah. So I think I don't know. I, I don't. I don't feel it was as much of a cop out here. So I yeah. Would, I don't know. I don't. I don't want you to not have your opinion. I just. <laughs> well, it, I think cop cop out is definitely a strong word, and the incorrect word. But it's it's one of those convenient convenient okay aspects character aspects sure where I it's can buy like that. all right so this guy is controlling me he can do anything and make me do anything but when it comes to my love my love interest. You know, love overpowers all. You know, which again, it's a classic storyline, seen it a million times, and I don't know why it bothered me so much with this movie. Um, I, I think I'm just going to blame it on the look of the mummy. I was so I was so uh, removed, distra- right? Did from, you have time to think about? That it? I had time to think about <laughs> all the other inconsistencies and annoyances. Sure. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I agree. I really liked that the character of. You know, I am the protector of all things, you know, sacred of the tomb that I'm willing to go through. And um, I possess the ability to make the mummy do my bidding and kill all those that were involved in desecrating, uh, desecrating the site. Because that is the oath I've taken. This is what I have to do. Does that necessarily make me a bad guy? Or make him a bad guy? Uh, not really. Not inherently, no. No, but I mean, but he is also murdering people. Like, you know, I, I mean, to be fair, he did warn them. Right? M- more than once, it if seemed. If then, right? If then. If you do this, then I'm going to do this. That's, that's, see, that's not a threat. That's a warning. Right. You know, so just for, for all you legal eagles out there, you know, <laughs> if then is not a threat, that's a warning. You're allowed to warn people. <laughs> well, overall, what did, what did you what did you think uh, about these th- 
three. I mean, there. I'm glad we discussed these three specifically, including 1959's Hammer, The Mummy, uh, because they are all first in a series, uh, whereas this one carries on, 1940s carries on, Mummy Sam sure. carries on, and, you know, the original one did not carry on. Other right. than the, the mythos, it established the whole mythos of the character. Absolutely. Um, I would say that this has uh, definitely been a fun delve into three different ways people have come to enjoy the character of, um, you know, the mummy uh, and why it has kind of this enduring legacy. So I, I thoroughly liked it for that aspect of it. Um, would I go back and rev- and view any of these movies again? Um, uh, uh, ironically, only The Mummy's Hand. I, I, I did think I enjoyed that one the most. Although I will say I really liked what Hammer did, what Hammer brought to it as well. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of where I'm on it. I agree. Yeah, I'm looking forward to showing my son uh, the Hammer movie. Yeah, it's just, it's visually cool. And it, it's a nice compare and contrast with... Uh, the mummy's hand De- absolutely definitely yeah i definitely i mean when i say would i go back and see these movies again that that would be on my own i'm absolutely down to you know right make sure the kidlets get uh their proper education in film but the karloff movie is very important it is yes. slow and it is a little for a lot of people a lot of young folk it's going to be a chore to watch um, and I enjoyed but it, a, but it's a sixty-minute chore. The movie credits and all is an hour six, right? So it's not like it's a slog. It's you, you can make it, right? And it, you know, I I enjoyed it because of the history of the film and what it started, uh, and what came after it. I sure. guess. And so I, it's it's fun. I'm looking forward to watching these other movies. I know one of them I have seen before. I don't know which one it is. Uh, but I'm excited to get back to it and um, revisit my childhood memories of this one particular mummy uh, mummy movie. Well, Matthew, yes. I guess we've reached the end of our return. We have. Um, where if people wanted to send us an email to let us know how we're doing to let us know of any other mummy movies or uh, if they want to share with us their experience with these films, where can they email us? Uh, definitely the show at slscast.com. That's going to be the best way to get a hold of us. Yes, and we will try to check our email uh, and report back either the next episode or maybe we'll try to go back and do little email segments that are separate from the shows just so... You know, we don't take away too much from the movies at hand. I guess that does it for this episode. Um, I am Tim. I am Matt. And we will get back to you all again next week for part two of the Mummy franchise. Take care, guys.